This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And thank you for joining us once again. Um, don't forget, as always, you can get in touch with us about today's episode or any aspect of true crime that you want to chat with us about on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email and YouTube. Any aspect. Any aspect. Whoa, we've opened ourselves up there. Of true crime. Of true crime, yeah. Uh, also, thank you to our newest Patreon member, Rhea Butler. Um, it's great to have you on board. Yeah, thank you. Your support means so much to us. Um, we say it every week, but if you do want to sign up to support the show through Patreon, it only takes a couple of minutes. And um, we've got all sorts of different levels there where you get access to loads of different fun stuff. And your support through Patreon really does make a massive difference to us. So this week's case is one that has been requested numerous times by our listeners, especially our UK listeners. Um, This week I'm going to be telling you about the Hungerford Massacre, which is an event that shocked the nation at the time but hasn't been forgotten at all. And it's an event that kind of forced huge changes for the UK relating to firearm ownership in a similar manner to my Dunblane episode, which was at the end of season two. The events that I'm going to be covering today happened almost a decade before the events of the 13th of March 1996, but these two massacres are really key parts in our UK true crime history. I I think that you do these, uh, I hate to kind of use the term massacre, but you do these mass killings really well. Um, You cover them really sensitively with the right amount of detail. Um, So we've had the 7-7 bombings, we've had Mm. Dunblane, what was the other Hillsborough. one? Hillsborough. Yeah, I didn't realise I do things like this quite often, don't I? Yeah, this is this is your forte, really. But as I say, you do you do them so sensitively. Oh, thank you. This this case in particular is is really interesting to me personally because I live not far from where the events took place, and my sister lives really close to there now. So I knew people who were around at the time of this happening, and some have actually shared with me when they were requesting this as a case to cover the absolute terror that they felt in realising this was going on quite close to home. So that was one of the reasons I really wanted to cover this. But I didn't realise, yeah, actually, I do seem to cover this kind of case quite often, don't I? Yeah. Um. So Hungerford is a quaint, pretty town, and it's famous for its canal, its antique shops, and its upmarket boutiques. And it's not the sort of place you would expect one of the UK's worst massacres in history to happen. Although 
saying that you don't expect this to happen anywhere, of course, but it, it just seems such a juxtaposition between the place and the events that take place. I've always wanted to look in a little bit more detail about what happened. And so I really enjoyed, it's the weird way word to kind of use, but I really enjoyed doing the research for this because it's a case I didn't know loads about, but now I feel like I've got quite a good understanding of what happened. The only thing that's a bit annoying for me is if our episodes had been alternated, this episode would have been released on the anniversary of the event. So last Wednesday would have been the anniversary, but in 1987. That's weird, isn't it? it because is. the episode that we did last week, so PC Andrew Harper, um, we'd only just passed the one year anniversary of his death. Yeah. So we weren't on it, but we were within a week of it and we're going to be within a week of this pretty much or yeah. a week or two. So um, interesting. Weird, isn't it? Yeah. So before we start talking about today's case, shall we have a quick word from our first sponsor of the episode? Yes. I love that that's our new thing now. Teach people how I to have spell to say the it, word yeah. red. In case you don't know how to spell it. And to be, to be fair to Stitch Fix and all of our sponsors, and we talk about our sponsors a bit because we would only ever have a sponsor that we absolutely are in love with anyway. And they actually don't tell us to read out the red, as in R-E-D. I don't want anyone to think they do. Uh, but we always like to just throw it out there for a bit of fun, don't we? Well, th- this is the only fun we have in our lives, guys. <laughs> yeah, and this is the only fun you're going to get this episode, I think. True. So Michael Robert Ryan was born in Savernac Hospital in Marlborough, Wiltshire on the 18th of May 1960. He was an only child and he remained single, living at home with his parents and then his mother when his dad died. Some of the press have commented that they had an unhealthy relationship and were too close and have said he was a mummy's boy and that he was spoiled. But to be honest, there are plenty of people who live with their parents and stay single. I'm not really sure we can read too much into that. But something I knew you would have a comment about, Mark, is that Michael was an only child. And I know how much you love to discuss <laughs> only children. Uh, I've got to be really careful what I say now. But we used to work with a guy, Ben, didn't we? And he was an only child. And I would always call him a spoiled little bitch. And um, and he wasn't, actually. I love Ben. But, um, <laughs> he's actually a legend. But yeah, he's, you were he's very a total mean legend. <laughs> but I was very mean to him, um, saying how spoiled only children are and how they don't <laughs> they literally just don't have a concept of sharing or getting a drinks round in or anything and it's so. such a, it was so harsh as well because generally that's not the case but it was just because you'd have to take the mick out of him so it, it made me laugh bit, about yeah it was just to have a bit of good old banter with ben benjina yeah. i used to call him didn't i you did benjina so, being serious again now, right? There, yeah. there wasn't much that was too unusual about Michael's childhood and his upbringing. He wasn't particularly bright or gifted, but he did okay at school. His classmates remembered him as shy and quiet and as someone who would keep himself to himself. He was keen on the military and his passions were cars and guns. When he was 13, his mum Dorothy bought him an air rifle and he soon became a really skilled shooter. He would take great pleasure in aiming the weapon at anything and everything, including cows, birds, and apparently other children. So by about 13, it's, he's a bit scary, really. Yeah, you could say that, but 13-year-old boys are going to be obsessed with guns, the army, the A-team, and what was the other thing he was obsessed with? Well, yeah, I think that's it. Like He also really loved fast cars, and engines and stuff so So they're gonna love all of that that's That's really normal 
I think it's normal. Pointing them at cows and kids, not so normal. Yeah, but equally, kids do play shooting games. So I don't know. There's a lot that you could read a lot into things with him because of knowing what he goes on to do. But really, I think he's just a bit of a loner, a bit of a potentially a bit of a mummy's boy who didn't have a lot of friends and he was a bit shy or people didn't really like him as much. And and that was kind of that. He was a bit unremarkable as well. I think that's a word that comes up quite often. When he left school, he did a series of casual labouring jobs and he wasn't really employed anywhere for very long, you know, a length of time. He didn't really do lots of good things. He just kind of flitted from job to job. But his mum would buy him a new car every two years. And this actually put her overdrawn in her bank accounts by the time of the shootings. So maybe she was pandering to him a little bit. As an adult, Michael joined two gun clubs and he legally owned several semi-automatic weapons. He was well known for driving in a manner described as like a bat out of hell. And the only time that he'd been in trouble with the police was for breaking the speed limit. Michael also liked to elaborate his stories about his life. So he told his mother at one point that he had a mysterious friend who was a retired colonel who was going to buy him a house and a Ferrari. He had a made-up girlfriend and that lie actually went so far that his mum started inviting people to their future wedding and it wasn't even a real girlfriend. He also told people that he'd been in the SAS and his mum, whether she believed him or not or knew that he was lying, she never contradicted him. Michael's dad passed away when Michael was 25, so two years before the shootings. And so his father has been described as a lovely man, but there were rumours he was especially strict with his son. One of Michael's school friends remembered that Dorothy would buy Michael whatever he wanted, but his father Alfred couldn't be played and wore the trousers in the house. And then after Alfred's death in 1985, Dorothy began appearing in public with bruises on a regular basis. She would always say that she'd bumped herself or fallen over, but it was quite often and it was quite suspicious. Psychologists have theorised that because Michael saw his dad being in charge and being quite a strict man, or perhaps even being a bully, that Michael kind of learned this was how you treat women or this is how you treat your mother. So with Dorothy pandering to her husband and son's wishes... Michael Ryan then saw her as someone who was there to essentially serve him, so he thought he could just treat her however he wanted. Professor Craig Jackson, a psychologist who you may remember the name of from the Manchester Pusher Fact or Fiction episodes, says he believes that the violence towards his mother would fit in with Michael Ryan's psychological profile as a narcissist who just couldn't cope with being disobeyed, disagreed with or challenged. And an overindulgent mother could have led to him never taking responsibilities for his actions, which is a personality trait common to many spree killers. A lot of this is textbook, isn't it? Mm-hmm. His upbringing, his dad dying at the age of 25, um, and then almost taking over that role and a really messed up relationship with his mum, where she was possibly overbearing but also indulging him. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, isn't it? I do think there's a lot that potentially we might be reading too much into it, but a lot of it does seem to just fit. Like you said, it's just textbook. Savanac Forest is a beautiful place near Marlborough where I actually was recently with my family and it's popular with dog walkers and ramblers, but also for people spending the day there with a picnic, for example, 
we've had quite a few family gatherings where loads of family come from all over to spend the day in the field or have a little hike and it was one of Michael Ryan's favorite places too but rather than being there to have a barbecue he was there to practice his tracking skills his survival skills and he loved to spy on people a former school friend remembers a teenage Ryan boasting of spying on and stalking people there and the friend said he used to say he could follow anyone and they wouldn't notice. I think he used to do it quite often but then again with him he did used to say a lot of things but this did actually ring true. He used to wear camouflage gear, that sort of thing. He took it seriously. So that's quite, you know, even his school co- uh, school friends who he they all think he's lying a lot, they think this might actually be true. Professor Jackson thinks that there was also a sexual motive to this behaviour, so he thinks that Michael would get a sexual thrill from following and watching people from afar without being spotted. I don't understand that though. What? How could? I don't know. How could you get a sexual thrill from it? People get sexual thrills from a lot of weird stuff, though, Mark. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, yeah. It could have been almost. I don't know. Just going unnoticed and. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an element of control when you can see someone, but they can't see you. So yeah, I you can think kind of, of see it. Toms, that's quite a big. Yeah, but usually they're peeping at you know Susan up the road in the shower. Um, they're looking at something specific, not just random people in in a park. Yeah. So despite being such a liar, and despite weaving a web of elaborate fantasies, and despite being what I would just call a weirdo stalking people in the forest. Michael Ryan wasn't classed as mentally ill, he had no history of mental illness and his gun applications had been countersigned by his doctor so nobody had any worries about him at the time. I wanted to quickly look at these gun applications. So with some similarities to the Dunblane shooter Thomas Hamilton who was armed with four legally owned handguns, Michael Ryan was legally issued firearm certificates. So he was first issued a shotgun certificate in 1978 Um, In December 1986, he was granted a firearm certificate covering the ownership of two pistols. He then later had this amended to cover a third pistol in April 1987. And then in the July, he applied for another variation to cover two semi-automatic rifles. And this was then approved on the 30th of July of 1987. No issues about Michael Ryan's suitability to hold shotgun or firearm certificates ever came to police notice. However, after the events we're going to be covering today, there were reports that came out that he regularly carried at least one gun in his car and that he would occasionally take pot shots at road signs. So there were some worries, but nobody really thought to mention them for some reason. I guess because it, it didn't seem important at that point. And I had to keep reminding myself that this is before a lot of the rules and the laws changed. So actually him carrying that was completely legal and potentially quite common. I don't know. I was thinking that, yeah, this mm. is this is 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago that this happened as well. Um, so it was a different world in in this country. Mm. And then we, I, I'm sure you'll come on to it. But yeah, the the law was tightened up a little bit, I'm guessing, following what happened. Yeah. Um, but then also when we had the Dunblane massacre in 96, it really was tightened up massively. So we have grown up in a country where the gun laws are very strict. But back then in the 80s and the early 90s, that they weren't as strict. But we don't remember that, I guess. Yeah, definitely. 
So at the time of the shootings, he was legally in possession of this crazy list of guns. So this is mad. He had a Zabala shotgun, a Browning shotgun, a semi-automatic 9mm Beretta 92FS, a .32 CZ Orzo semi-automatic rifle, and a .22 Bernadelli pistol. He also had two semi-automatic rifles, so a rare model of an M1 carbine and a Kalashnikov or a Kalashnikov model, like a replica. I'm not certain on that one. Um, That is a real arsenal of weapons, isn't it? It really is, isn't it? Yeah. And shortly before the events on the 19th of August, Michael sold the Bernadelli .22 pistol and sent the .32 pistol for repair with a firearms dealer. So this means that at the time of the massacre, he had, in his legal possession, three shotguns, a pistol, and two semi-automatic rifles. And why would anybody need six guns i guess again because we live in a slightly different world right now but i guess because he was interested in them he was a collector he liked to go and shoot them at the gun clubs it's it wasn't that unusual to have a collection of things you're interested in and i suppose they are all slightly different so in the same way yeah. that you would collect other things that are quite similar but you would have a number of them it's because there are variations my dad had nine motorbikes in his garage. At wow. One point. Yeah, and they were all vintage bikes. So someone could say the same. Obviously, you can't shoot someone with a motorbike, but you could say a similar sort of thing. Like, why yeah. do you need nine different similar things? So, yeah, it's, it's mad, isn't it, though, that he had all of that just legally? Yeah. And that was that, yeah. The first alerts of someone shooting on the 19th of August 1987 came when a woman called Myra Rose was approached by two children who rushed over to her crying out that a man in black has shot our mummy. Hannah was just four and James was just two years old when they ran to this stranger for help. They had been having a picnic with their mum Susan in Savannah Forest when Michael Ryan marched towards them with his Beretta pistol raised. It's not known how long he was watching the trio for before he approached them that lunchtime. He forced Susan to put her children back into the car and then he marched her into some bushes where he shot her 13 times in the back and this was at roughly 12.30. This actually used up the whole of the gun's magazine. Pathologists determined that she was killed by the first three bullets, but Michael Ryan hadn't stopped there. He carried on shooting Mrs. Godfrey until he ran out of ammunition. The investigation into her murder showed that she wasn't raped, but a ground sheet found nearby placed there by Michael seems to suggest that he had this in his plans. So Professor Jackson and his colleague Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, who I'm sure we've also heard of in cases before, They have conflicting views on this aspect of the crime. So Professor Jackson theorises that Susan refused him or resisted and he killed her in panic when she attempted to run away. Whereas Dr Elizabeth Yardley thinks that Michael saw Mrs Godfrey and her children having a picnic and enjoying themselves, saw what a happy occasion it was and so he felt really resentful about this and he just decided he wanted to seize control. And I think both of those are really plausible. And we're never going to know. And potentially a mix of both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, do, I do think there are quite a lot of crimes against women where it's an attempted rape and there is resistance there or the man is struggling to commit the rape for whatever reason and the woman will pay for that with her life. I do think we've seen that before. Um, we saw it with, with the one on the train, I think. Um, yeah, Debbie, Debbie Lindsley's story. Yeah. We said that that was potentially what the... Yeah. 
And frustratingly, like you said, we'll never know why Michael did this and what caused this to happen. But this was just the beginning. You will be pleased to know that eventually the Godfrey children were reunited with their dad after they alerted Myra. So I just had to put that in because I just couldn't shake the idea of these two little kids. Oh, it made me really sad. Um, And after shooting season, Michael headed back along the A4 to Hungerford where he lived. First of all, he stopped at a Froxfield petrol station called the Golden Arrow Filling Station. After waiting for a motorbiker called Ian George to leave the shop, Michael began to put fuel in his car and into a canister. Next, he started to shoot at Kebab Dean, the sales assistant inside, but luckily he missed her and this was just five minutes after he'd shot Sue Godfrey. And this is all in broad daylight, isn't it? In broad daylight, so it's like 12.35, middle of the day. When he tried to go into the shop to shoot Kebab at closer range, he stopped because his gun's magazine had fallen out by accident, so she was really luckily spared. And then he jumped back into his car and continued on home. Ian, the biker who had witnessed the shooting, rushed to make an emergency call to the police, reporting that he had seen an attempted armed robbery. So this, at 12.40, was the first 999 call of the day the first of many such calls that the police were due to be inundated with. The call at 12.40 to Newbury Police Station reporting the shooting incident at the Golden Arrow service station was confirmed by a telephone call from Swindon Police five minutes later. Two police cars, one driven by PC Breton and one driven by PC Woods, plus another with Sergeant Ryan and PC Mags, were dispatched to the A4 to keep a lookout for this silver Astra that had been involved in the shooting. But at this stage, the police had no knowledge of the shooting at Savanac Forest. Does that make sense? Yeah, so uh, I suppose, really, for, for the police have, have been alerted to Michael Ryan. They've been alerted to his behaviour at that petrol station. Um, but really, as far as they're concerned right now, they're looking for a guy who was attempting to commit armed robbery and that's it. Yeah, exactly. They know what car he was in and that's that. And so I will try my best not to kind of jump all over the timeline, but we will return back to these police cars. It's just that so much happens in such a short space of time. So these police cars are then um, dispatched across to the A4 and at this point as well the next sighting of Michael Ryan that was then reported afterwards was at his home in Southview Hungerford at about 12:45. so he's been described as driving like a bat out of hell and he absolutely does within five minutes he's got from Savanac Forest to the petrol station and then he's at home at 12:45, so he's definitely speeding around he loaded up his car with more of his weapons Um, But when he tried to drive off, the car wouldn't start. And this is when he absolutely lost it. So neighbours reported seeing him in an agitated manner. He started shooting at his car and then he stormed into the house. Inside the house, he shot his dog. He started to chase another dog away and then he doused his house in petrol and set it alight. He left his shotguns in his broken down car but he grabbed a pistol and the two automatic rifles and then he marched along the row of houses to the house of Roland and Sheila Mason. So the fire that he set of his house, it was a terrace of houses and the fire took hold really quickly. It destroyed his home as well as three adjoining properties. At the Mason's home, Roland and Sheila were in their back garden and Michael marched up and shot them. Roland was shot six times, and then Sheila was shot once in the head. 
And what really struck me when researching this case was how much of a small town village feel this place had. And to be honest, it still has. A number of the people who were caught up in this rampage were linked in some way, be it through family or work. And it really shook this community to its core. And I guess this is because the massacre was carried out with someone who not only lived in the town, but had grown up there. It wasn't just a random stranger. This was Michael Ryan, who lived in Southview, and who PC Trevor Wainwright, the local Bobby, had carried out firearms license checks on. And on this day, on Wednesday, the town was busy, because for generations Wednesday had been market day, and therefore it was the busiest day of the week. PC Wainwright was headed to his part-time job as a gardener in a nearby village when he heard a news report on the radio about a suspected armed robbery at a petrol station in Froxfield. He wondered whether he should see if he could do anything to help, because after all, he was in the area, and he actually knew Cabal, but it was his day off and his parents were due to head up for a visit. Plus, the petrol station was technically out of his jurisdiction. So he began his work in the garden for the lady Mrs. Roland Clark, that that was his kind of part-time job. About half an hour later, Mrs. Roland Clark called him to the telephone where he spoke to his wife, Jane, who told him someone was shooting across the back gardens of their road. So he assumed that the armed robbers from Foxfield had been cornered in Hungerford. So he rushed back home, telling his wife to stay indoors. And then he made his way over to the police station. The station was locked, so he let himself in with a key and put himself on duty and kind of took a bit of control at the beginning. He knew that his local knowledge would be invaluable and that he could show the armed response team the back routes around town. But I have jumped ahead a bit here, so all of this has kind of happened in such a short time frame. So in the meantime, after shooting the Masons in their back garden, Michael had wasted no time in making his way along South View. He was shooting indiscriminately and was basically just trying to cause as much carnage as possible. He headed towards the common and a woman called Marjorie Jackson was really shocked to see a dog run past her, chased by Michael Ryan, who she knew well. Marjorie worked with Michael's mum at the primary school. She lived near to him and she had known him all her life. And I can't imagine the shock, the confusion and the horror she must have felt when she saw the boy she remembered as quiet and polite stood there pointing a gun at her with an expressionless face. He began to shoot at her and she ran, dust flying from the bullets, towards her house. He chased her all the way as she fled for her life and getting inside, she slammed the door Finally, she figured she was safe, but no, she looked up and Michael was at her kitchen window, aiming the gun at her and firing through the window at her. He shot her in her lower back as she turned to run again, and she said, I knew I'd been hit. There was a terrible burning pain, I couldn't walk. I couldn't move my legs, I was on the floor. All I could think of was my dogs, I thought he'd come in and kill them. And with a bullet lodged in the base of her spine, Marjorie crawled across the blood and glass all over the floor and managed to lock her dogs into a cupboard before she phoned 999. I just love that she was thinking about her dogs. Honestly, I can't. I've, it, I've really feel that you've taken me to the scene of the crime. Um, I can see it so vividly. I can see her in a house and I can see her mm-hmm. having that sense of relief, but still panic. And then she looks up at the kitchen window and he's there. Oh, my God. It's like a horror movie, isn't it? it? Li- I was just going to say, this is literally the stuff of horror films. Yeah. Um, and to have the, the sense of 
mind to lock the dogs away and get herself safer than she already was and to call the police and to call her husband all the while she's got a bullet lodged in the base of her spine mm-hmm. i just honestly i just she's an absolute legend she really is and it gets better she is such a strong woman because she phoned the after phoning 999 she phoned the building firm where her husband worked and left a message for him but she didn't want to worry anyone so she simply said i need him to come home not i've been shot or anything like that she didn't want him to stress and rush so she just said i need him to come home straight away wow so Iva, her husband, got a lift home with their friend George. So remember Iva and George, we will return to them shortly. But Michael continued his deadly rampage. He continued along that row of the street. At one point, he smiled at 14-year-old Lisa Mildenhall, who was playing in the garden with her sister and two children from another house. The other three ducked down on the floor as Michael crouched down near to her. But Lisa was frozen to the spot and then he shot her four times in both legs and her abdomen. One of the boys she was with went to fetch his mother, Sylvia, who was a qualified first aider who lived on the road, and so she stayed with the teenager whilst they waited for an ambulance. And an elderly woman called Dorothy tried to chastise Michael for making a racket. She kind of came out of her house and was like, what are you playing at? I think she just thought he was playing up. She didn't realise what was actually happening. And Marjorie Jackson, the woman who got shot in the back managed to drag her out of harm's way into her house and actually save this lady. Wow. I know. God, that is, I mean, that is superhuman. Yeah. The police cars that I spoke about previously were now responding to reports of gunfire in the Southview area, so they decided to approach from all different routes to kind of cover as much ground as possible. Um, Two separate witnesses at this point actually stated that gunfire wasn't uncommon to hear from the commons so the police were currently just responding to sounds of gunfire following a suspected armed robbery they had no idea that michael ryan was on the move and that he was shooting people as he went so michael ryan continued his way along the footpath to the common the next group he came across was the clements family who were walking their dog and the father kenneth raised his arms in a show of surrender when he saw the weapons which took Michael's attention long enough for the rest of the Clements family to clamber over a wall to safety. Kenneth wasn't so lucky and Michael Ryan shot him at close range in the chest. He was killed instantly and fell to the ground, still clutching his dog's lead, while his terrified family ran for their lives. So PC Roger Breton, who was one of the police cars that we mentioned earlier, Um, he suddenly arrived kind of in response to the gunfire reports and I really wonder what he expected when he went to work that morning. Obviously this would have been the last thing he imagined and his car was shot at by Michael. He was hit four times in the chest, he lost control of his car and crashed into a telephone pole. Radioing his colleagues that he had been shot, he died right there in his car and just prior to his radio call that he had been shot, the controller in the force control room had issued to all officers about firearms and to exercise maximum care and sent out this warning. But sadly, that warning was just moments too late for Roger. The, it's a, it's quite a rural community as well. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about um, whether Roger, what he would have been thinking when he got up in the morning to go to work, it would have just been a normal day. Even though he was a serving PC, that is a rural community. So you don't deal with some of the things that officers and the Met, for example, would deal with in London. 
So not in a million years would he have imagined that he would encounter a crazed gunman on a, a killing spree. And how sad that literally just seconds before he would have received a warning through the police radio to be extra vigilant, um, he was he was shot and killed. So the next car to arrive was driven by Linda Chapman and she had her teenage daughter Alison with her. Michael fired 11 rounds at their car, hitting both mother and daughter. Linda managed to reverse the car in a tiny little break while Michael reloaded his gun and they escaped and sped away to the local doctor. Alison had been critically wounded in her thigh and had a bullet lodged in her lower spine and Linda had damage from broken glass and a bullet lodged in her shoulder. But they were lucky to survive. Yeah, I also think that the way that he's shooting these people, it it really is random, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. these aren't necessarily calculated shots. I think so far, he's only shot one person in the head. Yeah, so um, the Masons at the beginning, they were very calculated and that's who he wanted to shoot. But then everybody else, it's kind of just he comes across them and he's like, right, we'll go for it. Yeah, it's just throwing the gun around and shooting wildly. Yeah, Kenneth, obviously, he did point and aim at him, but... That was mostly because Kenneth had got his attention as well. So yeah, it is just as much carnage as he could possibly cause. The next car to appear was driven by George and held Ivor Jackson, Marjorie's husband. As George White turned his car into Southview, he was shot in the head by the gunman and he died instantly. And his car then smashed into the patrol car. Next to him in the passenger seat was Ivor Jackson, who was injured from the crash, but mostly he was injured from being shot in his arm, his chest and his head. Blood was pouring down his face, and so what he did was he played dead and he prayed that the gunman wouldn't check too closely. So he watched through half-open eyes as Dorothy Ryan, Michael's mum, arrived home from the Wednesday market. So she was just, I don't know if she drove up or if she was walking, but at this point then she was walking along kind of in the midst of all of this carnage, seeing her son ahead of her. She looked into the car and he remembers hearing her say, oh no, Ivor, not you. So Dorothy had arrived back to be faced with the horror of her house on fire bleeding people injured and dead all around her and her son on a rampage firing those prized possessions, the guns that he loved so much, at people she knew and cared for. Dorothy Ryan tried to reason with her son. She approached him telling him to stop but he simply shot her at close range and she lay dead on the ground and then Michael shot her again twice in the back from about four inches away. Sylvia Pascoe, the neighbour who was helping Lisa after she was shot, was helping to stem the 14-year-old's bleeding until the ambulance arrived. And they kept looking for the lights of an ambulance arriving and finally they appeared in the distance. But Michael also noticed this lights and the, I guess, sirens as well. So he started firing at the ambulance, shattering the window and injuring paramedic Hazel Hazlitt, who luckily managed to speed away before Ryan was able to fire at her and her colleague again. And so luckily those two escaped with only minor injuries. Michael Ryan also killed his neighbour, Abdul Rahman Khan, while he was mowing his lawn, and he shot at and wounded his next-door neighbour, Alan Lepittet. And Alan had actually helped build Michael's gun display unit. So there's so many links with people knowing everybody here. The the sense of irony there. Mm-hmm. He'd As helped he him build help- that gun cabinet yeah. to display these weapons. And little would he have known, however many years later, that he would die at the hands of that man well he didn't he was just wounded uh, sorry, however his yeah. his neighbor abdul was was shot and killed yeah. yeah 
completely. So then Michael Ryan continued his way towards Hungerford Common, leaving behind him this scene of absolute carnage, the, the stuff of nightmares. And along with the people I have named in this episode, many, many others were wounded or injured. And Michael was not finished yet. But I kind of wanted to pause here and return to the police force because they were attempting to deal with this situation that was unfolding. And like I said before, so much happened in such a short space of time. So the police were dealing with a situation that was not only unprecedented, but was also moving at such a ridiculously fast pace. Hungerford was policed by two sergeants and 12 constables, and on the morning of the 19th of August, the cover for the section consisted of one sergeant, two patrol constables and one station duty officer, so really only four staff members. There were only two phone lines in operation at the station which was being renovated and the telephone exchange could not handle the number of 999 calls that were being made by witnesses. Annoyingly as well, journalists were taking up precious phone lines because the journal, I mean, honestly, I'm going to keep going on about them, but the press were a nightmare on this day. And I appreciate they've got a story to tell and that it is in the public interest to know what's happening. But right in the middle of it all, twats, honestly, absolute twats. (laughs) So the police were trying to react to tips that were called in by the public, but often when they arrived somewhere, things had moved on. And the following is from a report on the events. So it stated that recordings at Newbury Public Telephone Exchange show that in the 98 minutes between 12.40, when the exchange recorded the first emergency call of the shootings, and 2.18, a total of 83 999 calls were routed to Newbury Police Station and 22 calls to the ambulance and fire services. And in the 24-hour period from noon that day, the Newbury Telephone Exchange, which normally handles 300,000 calls a day, recorded that a further million calls were attempted. So the 999 system and the telephone systems were just totally swamped and unable to cope with all of this. The police helicopter was in for repairs, although it was eventually deployed, at which point Michael Ryan's movements were tracked via the air. But this was almost an hour after he set his house on fire. The police's work from the skies was then hampered again by media helicopters because the journalists were responding to reports of the attacks and having one helicopter above you is loud enough. But apparently all of these helicopters made it really hard for the grounds police to hear their radios and to be able to talk to each other. God, that's so frustrating. Isn't it, Jess? Yeah. And also for the police helicopter, who's trying to have free reign to fly wherever, having to potentially dodge other helicopters or think about other helicopters in the sky, it's just not great at all. And they'd have all been flying quite low in order to try and track Ryan. Mm -hmm. so. So how dangerous that is as well. Yeah. The guns that Michael Ryan had in his possession were far beyond the capabilities of Hungerford Police Station's firearms locker, and so armed police were requested, but the Thames Valley Firearms Squad were training 40 miles away. An evacuation plan for the town was set up, and the police moved into town centre, attempting to get people out of the way of the approaching gunmen, and they were setting up roadblocks and trying to divert people. On Hungerford Common, Michael Ryan came across Francis Butler, who was walking his dog, and he shot him and left him for dead. Crossing a road, he walked out in front of Marcus Bernard's car, and the taxi driver slowed to let him go past, but Michael turned his semi-automatic rifle on him and shot him, causing a massive injury to his head and eventually killing him. PC Wainwright was still in his gardening clothes at the station, where he had rushed back to help out at work, and he was talking to members of the public 
like Robert Clements, whose dad Kenneth had been shot. He was called into his boss's office and he assumed he was being called in to be told you should be wearing your uniform or we need you to go somewhere else. He was then told that his parents had been caught up in Michael's rampage and his dad had been killed. So I don't know if you remember me mentioning that they'd actually travelled from Kent to come and visit him. Oh no, yeah. And they were just 300 yards from their son's home when Michael started firing at their car. Douglas hit the brakes as the windscreen shattered. Michael continued to fire and in total he fired eight rounds into their car, hitting Douglas in the head and Kathleen in the chest and shoulder. Kathleen could tell that her husband was dead and so whilst Michael was reloading, she unbuckled her seatbelt and ran and hid behind a car. He made his way towards her and she was shaking, fearing for her life. There was no way he wouldn't kill her at such close range and he walked towards her but then he turned away so maybe he was distracted or maybe he just enjoyed the power of sparing her life. Either way, she was able to survive and she was taken to hospital where her son PC Wainwright met her. Isn't that horrible? Again, this is this is a, a horrible thriller horror film. Yeah. Every scene that you're uh talking about is is like its own horror film. And how she managed, I'd, I'd have been shaken so much, I wouldn't have even been able to get the seatbelt off. And my brain just would not have been working. I wouldn't have been able to to open the door and to run and to think what to do. And yeah. then for her to, to come so close once again to being killed by him as she hid behind that car. And he, he saw her and she knew that was it. And then he changes his mind at the last second or is distracted or whatever happened. But... I mean, she really, really literally dodged it, didn't she? Mm-hmm, completely. And it's just things like Francis is just, he's just walking his dog or Kenneth just walking their dogs and then that's, this happens. Or or Marcus, who who is driving his taxi around and he actually stops to let this guy pass in front of him, gets shot through the windscreen. It's, yeah, it's just And he horrendous. would have had... Uh, at least a second when he'd stopped his taxi to let Michael Ryan pass, he would have had a second where he realised what the hell was just about to happen. Mm-hmm. When the gun was pointed at him, it would have literally just been a second and then he would have been shot and killed. But yeah. he would have had that moment in his last moment on this planet where he realised what was about to happen mm-hmm. to him. And that that is just awful. Yeah. And so PC Wainwright then rushed to Swindon Hospital to go meet his mum. And at this point, the name of the gunman was circulating. And so PC Wainwright has said, in fact, I thought at first it was another lad who lived there, a right little sod. Michael Ryan was just so, so insignificant. And then I remembered the name. I had been the one to carry out the checks for Ryan's firearms licence. And I just thought that was just such a a weird coincidence in the world, isn't it? But but also that, that massive sense of guilt mm-hmm. that he's going to feel. After Michael left Kathleen, he came across a handyman called Eric Vardy who was driving with a friend, Stephen Ball, to a job. And they saw a man who had been shot stumbling nearby and then suddenly the windscreen of their van exploded as Michael fired on them. Eric was hit twice in the head and upper torso and he crashed the van into a wall. He would later die of shock and hemorrhages from his neck wound and luckily Stephen suffered no serious injuries. 
It was now half past one, just an hour since Sue Godfrey was murdered. Michael had killed 12 people so far and injured numerous others. He continued to open fire indiscriminately at anyone he saw. His next victim was killed because he fired at a random passing car and this single shot hit Sandra Hill who was driving to visit friends. She died in the arms of a soldier called Carl Harris who just tried in vain to save her with CPR and I thought that was really mad that some of these cars are being shot with eight rounds and hers was just one shot. So then with this, Michael changed tact. Instead of simply shooting people out in the open, he decided he needed to find some people at home. In what was possibly an imitation of a SWAT team on a mission, he shot out the locks of the front door of the Gibbs' house and he burst in. Inside were Jack and Myrtle Gibbs. Jack was killed instantly as he attempted to shield his wheelchair-bound wife with his own body and Myrtle died of her injuries two days later in hospital. So Professor Jackson said of this act, breaking in or shooting into a house and killing the inhabitants and then holding the position for a while before moving on, This would have appealed to his military ideals and fantasies. The police had set up roadblocks and Ian Playall was stopped by one such setup. He was told to take a different route home with his wife and two children in the car, purposefully avoiding the Southview area. But Michael had also changed routes and after firing at and injuring people at neighbouring houses to the Gibbses, he came across Ian and shot him in the neck and Ian crashed their car. Elizabeth said the car had begun to make a weird sound and when she turned to her husband she could just see blood pouring from his neck. She tried her best to stem his bleeding and frantically cried out for help from someone. Whilst his wife and children were unhurt Ian died in hospital two days later and his wife actually made a formal complaint against the police because she believed that They had been sent this different route and she believed that they should have been better protected. She thought that the information given to them at that roadblock which changed their route was insufficient and clearly they should have just been told don't go anywhere or leave the town, don't go into town a different way. And then there was also an issue where um, she got separated from her children after the fact and the police were unable to kind of reunite them for a long time and there was a lot of issues that she had. Her complaints were actually adjudicated upon by the Police Complaints Authority, but I believe that she was the only person who made an official complaint relating to this. I think hers was the only situation that came with this. I think people's grief manifests in lots of different ways, doesn't it? Because I th- I know it would be easy for us to say, well, the police were doing the best that they possibly could and they would never have intentionally put her or her children or her husband's life in danger and also it was a chaotic scene that mm-hmm. they could never have foreseen or prepared for. So mm-hmm. what? why complain about it? But without knowing all of the facts and knowing that lots of people will channel, channel their grief in different ways, I'm, I'm not going to blame her for putting a complaint no. in, although it is difficult for me to understand uh, from my perspective why why she felt the need. See, I kind of understand it a little bit more on her side. Like, I I get why she did it a little bit more. And I just think without her necessarily making that complaint, potentially that part of this might not have been as investigated as well as possible. And some of the changes that were then made for policing and how you would report back on the situation that was unfolding did happen because of this. Maybe not necessarily because of her, but... I think it I think it is an important thing they they shouldn't have been told to go a different route they should have just been stopped or taken into safety or evacuated out of the town not told to go in a different route yeah. through town 
Yeah, yeah, that's it's, fair. It is so difficult, though. I do get it. So the police helicopters continued searching for the gunman and the police on the ground just were kind of following the trail of destruction and devastation. Ambulances rushed numerous patients to nearby Swindon Hospital and then finally they found him. Michael had holed himself up in a second floor classroom of the John O'Gaunt School where he had formerly been a pupil and he was firing at the police and the media helicopters that were overhead. As it was the summer holidays, the school was locked up and empty. And as soon as it was confirmed that this was Michael and he was in the school, the police surrounded the large building and a team of police officers with the fire brigade and the ambulance service personnel attended Southview to extinguish the fire that was then blazing across four houses. Staff members helped the police with floor plans and the best routes when they got inside the school, as well as potential hiding places. Some reports stated that Michael waved a grenade out of the window. Um, Some reports have said that he said he had a grenade. Others have said that he didn't have any grenades, so I'm not sure about this point entirely. Um, But either way, he was pointing his weapons at and firing at the police and the press. The police got him into their sights at about 4.45 and they tried their best to negotiate with him, but Michael refused to leave. The standoff continued and at about 5.25, Michael threw his Kalashnikov semi-automatic rifle out of the window. Um, So this isn't necessarily in the same or in the right order but this is different bits that happened while they were trying to talk to him so at one point he said that killing his mum was a mistake um he expressed sorrow for killing his mum and at another point he expressed sorrow for killing his dog and one of the last things that he said was it's funny I've killed all those people but I don't have the guts to blow my own brains out and he'd also said Hungerford must be a bit of a mess at 6.52 a single shot was heard coming from the school The police tried to engage with Michael further, but he didn't answer. And they were reluctant to enter the building immediately because they didn't know whether this was a trap. They didn't know if he'd had had any accomplices. They didn't know if he'd set up booby traps in the building. So they took their time setting up a plan. At 8.10 that night, police entered the third floor room where Ryan had been seen and he was found slumped against a wall by a window. He had shot himself in the head. So it was finally over, but for the families and the loved ones of the 16 people Michael had killed, the pain and grief was just beginning, and for the town of Hungerford, this event would be etched into the memories of the town forever. So a recap of the names of the people who were murdered in this massacre were Susan Godfrey, Roland Mason, Sheila Mason, Kenneth Clements, Roger Breton, George White, Abdul Rahman Khan, Dorothy Ryan, Francis Butler, Marcus Barnard, Douglas Wainwright, Eric Vardy, Victor Gibbs, Myrtle Gibbs, and Ian Playle. What an awful list. It's just Isn't huge. It? Is that I'm guessing there is some kind of um memorial in Hungerford to oh, them. It'd I be, have no idea, I'm not sure. It'd be nice to see that, wouldn't it? I yeah, think. I'm not sure. I don't know. But for me, Hungerford I, I've known about this, the Hungerford Massacre, for a long time and don't live too far from there myself. It's only down the M4. And, yeah, it, the first thing I think of if I hear of Hungerford or see a sign for it is the Hungerford Massacre, even though this happened more than 30 years ago. It is still very much talked about in the area. Yeah, it's not kind of ever going to be forgotten, if that makes no. sense. No, not forgotten, but, yeah, it's always in the memory. I'm not sure if there's um, any physical place with the names, actually. I'm not sure. 
I'll have to have a look into that. A huge investigation was launched into the incident and whilst this was happening the police also needed to support the people of Hungerford in dealing with what had happened to them. Immediately afterwards a sweep search of a large part of the town was carried out to ensure that everyone was accounted for and that no injured or dead person had been overlooked. Door-to-door inquiries were made to all homes and the area where the shootings had occurred and nearby were secured so as to exclude all activity, most notably the press. They had already been annoying the police with their helicopters. They actually continued to hound survivors for years. Three press conferences were held though, because obviously everybody wanted to know what on earth had happened in this sleepy town. But as we see so often, the press were ruthless in their hunt for this story. Some reporters actually took photographs of the dead and the wounded and unethically gained access to some of the victims' houses by saying that they were crime scene personnel. See, that's awful, but at least... Like with the gun gun laws and gun ownership, the laws have been enhanced around the press and what they can do, even though they might still do it, but there would be more consequences mm-hmm. for them now. The Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who was on holiday in Cornwall at the time, was notified of the events and she was kept informed via a special phone line from Downing Street throughout the day. And the Casualty Bureau, which had been opened nearby at 3pm that same day, received many incoming calls from anxious members of the public and operated continuously for 48 hours, receiving 904 inquiries. The scenes of crime and coroner's officers had to deal with the recovery of the deceased and the evidence, as well as 15 vehicles which were removed for examination, and there were 78 bullet holes found in those 15 vehicles. Both the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary visited the scene in the days following the massacre and stress counselling was made available to all of the officers involved. The tabloids were filled with reports on Michael Ryan and his fascination with survival skills and firearms as well as his apparently unhealthy relationship with his mum and it was proper tabloid stuff. An inquest was held in the September at which the jury recommended that semi-automatic weapons shouldn't be generally available and individuals shouldn't be able to have an unlimited quantity of firearms. The coroner did make a statement at the end of this inquest about guns and policing saying, We as a nation cannot have it both ways. We cannot insist on having an unarmed police force and at the same time expect the police force in an emergency of this sort to become armed and available at a drop of a hat. And he also stated in his summing up, aside from the question of the armed officers, the police response was obviously pretty prompt. And I thought that was very fair because we as a country didn't want to have guns on the police and that sort of thing. But equally, when something happened, we expected the police to be able to respond in that way. So it was very interesting that this coroner was kind of like, look, this is going to be investigated separately. But right now, the police did did do a pretty decent job with a major situation that they weren't prepared for. But I think there's a big difference between the general public having as many guns as they want and the police having guns. I think the police, I'm happy for the police to have guns because that's much more regulated anyway. And I'm then happy for members of the public to be, to have for tighter control Mm. to be in place around it. So it's not it's not saying it has to be the same rule for the police and the general public. It can be different rules. Yes. And I think that's what was really interesting was it was kind of before there were still rules, but they were really light or lax, perhaps, or, or general. 
I mean, the, th- the thing is, I'm busy. I'm busy enough with my own job and the podcast <laughs> to then do his job as well. So um, yeah. I'll kind of just leave it to it. Yeah. So why did Michael Ryan do what he did? No one will ever know for sure because he didn't leave a manifesto. He didn't write or record any reasoning behind his plans. And the one person who actually knew him well, his mum, was murdered that day too. So some have theorised that he was influenced by a mass shooting 10 days earlier in Australia where Julian Knight killed 10 people. And Professor Jackson said he thinks that Michael Ryan didn't fully intend to commit a killing spree that day. He believes Michael had probably been fantasising about it on a low level, but the events of that day and his personality type led to it. Both John Hamilton, the medical director of Broadmoor Hospital, and Jim Higgins, a consultant forensic psychiatrist for Mersey Regional Health Authority, thought that he was schizophrenic and psychotic, and they believe that he would have had a reason for what he did, even if that reason didn't make sense to anyone except him. So my kind of thoughts around this, what I thought was really interesting was he would go to Savanac Forest and he would spy on people. And then he was spying on Susan Godfrey and her children. And then potentially he was going to rape her. And I feel like if what Professor Jackson was saying before um, about having a sexual thrill from the from that, potentially that's why it escalated into potentially wanting to rape her. He'd had years of feeling powerful with his guns and being obsessed with the military and weapons. So I think he decided to attack someone and this was Sue Godfrey. Maybe he didn't necessarily mean to, that he was going to shoot her afterwards or maybe the shooting happened because she resisted too much and he, or he, like you said, he couldn't rape her. I think this then set off something in his mind that made him want to get that feeling again. And then when he missed the sales assistant at the petrol station, he must have had those feelings of being a failure as well. Then his car wouldn't start. So I just think that's why he just started walking and shooting. I don't think he ever started that day thinking he was going to go shoot everybody. I think he he possibly did intend to rape her at that park and uh, couldn't do that for whatever reason she resisted or he was unable to commit rape uh, for other reasons. He then killed her and then just thought, well, I'm fucked now. Um, I'm going to go and show my village who's boss and I'm going to get revenge on people and I'm going to I'm going to bring everybody down with me because he knew whether he went to prison for one murder or 16 the outcome was pretty much going to be the same so I think he just he just thought I'm I'm fucked now I'm going to just go for it some people have said perhaps he was planning the house fire and then escaping in his car he was going to almost like fake his own death so after the initial shootings, he'd realised that he was screwed, so he'd kind of try and do that. But then that went wrong too. I'm just not really sure. Nobody knows for definite why he set the house on fire. Um, see, And this is the frustrating thing, is we're just never going to know. I think that would probably go, if you look at arsonists and why they um, set fires, that there's deep-rooted psychological reasons for it. And I would say that... Um, that would go deep in him. It wasn't just because there would have been a reason. Yeah. He would have got something from it. An official report was commissioned, which was called the Hungerford Report. And a lot of the information that I've used for today's case has actually come from that and a lot of the timeline. And following this report, a year after the massacre, British gun laws were changed. So the Firearms Brackets Amendment Act 1988 was passed to ban the ownership of semi-automatic centre-fire rifles and it restricted the use of shotguns with a capacity of more than three cartridges 
in magazine plus the breach. The act then banned semi-automatic and pump-action rifles, weapons which fire explosive ammunition, shotguns with magazines, and elevated pump-action and self-loading rifles. Shotguns had to be registered and were required to be kept in secure storage. So a lot of changes were made in British gun laws following this and especially following the Hungerford Report. And then also Britain's police were given a new communication system which was really needed because, as we said before, they were finding it hard to communicate with each other and a lot of stuff was done over radios. With the helicopters above, it was too noisy to hear properly and the 999 network was updated and modernised, again, because of the way that they were just inundated with phone calls and the phone lines couldn't keep up. So a lot of changes happened after this and then, yeah, when we look at the Dunblane shootings as well, even more kind of came about after that sort of 10 years later these are always interesting episodes because we've got listeners from all over the world listeners in america in the uk etc and quite often when we when we have a a case that features gun laws being amended um off the back of the events of, of that case people get in touch don't they from opposing sides we quite often have people that are very pro gun and people that are very anti so i think it'd be interesting again with this case to see what people yeah definitely and say how to it us would, really um potentially have played out in in their town wherever in the world they are or or what would have been different what would be different today if something like this started to happen or or what how today would look different if some of the laws hadn't been changed as well yeah really really interesting Um, Thank you for listening, as Bethan said. Uh, Please do get in touch with us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and you can also email us. So I'll try and remember to put the email address in the show notes. Uh, So if you would like to get in touch that way, you can do. Um, If you want to support us on Patreon, don't forget you can head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And um, there's 120-odd of you there. Uh, really enjoying it and uh, we are so grateful for your support so it's a real community that we have going on over there and don't forget to check out our show sponsors so stitchfix.co.uk slash red and also best fiends fantastic okay we will see you next time thanks for listening guys bye bye